0: Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God and just about everything else.
1: Welcome to uh, the 17th GodPod. It is, of course, a prime number, 17, isn't it? So I don't know if that's particularly significant, I'm sure. No, so it isn't, seen. so get on with it. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> um, but it's uh, a pleasure to have um, Jane again with us, as usual. Jane, Thank you, Mike. Hello. Um, uh, it's, it's sad not to have Graham with us, as... Because it means that you get me introducing more
2: Mike, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh,
1: but we'll get Graham back in due course. And uh, as our special guest this week, we have um, an old friend of mine from what, years and years ago, um, Tom Wright, who is uh, Bishop of Durham
0: and a Good to you. scholar.
1: Um, And uh, it's very good to have you with us.
0: It's very good to be with you, too, yes.
1: In uh, this GodPod, we're going to be looking at three kind of clusters of issues, really. First, the whole issue of the Church's relationship with Israel, and particularly the promises of God about the land of Israel, whether those still uh, pertain or not. Um, The second cluster is about... What's become known as the Rapture, like how bit in 1 Thessalonians 4 about going meeting the Lord in the air and what on earth or otherwise that's about. And thirdly, uh, the whole kind of end of the world language and the expectation that there may or may not have been New Testament writers but the imminent end of the space time universe. So those are the sort of things we're going to be looking at uh, in this session.
0: Congratulations on this enterprising project. <laughs> Well, it, we enjoy it. Good, I bet you do.
2: <laughs> it, is, it is so exciting to sit and talk theology for a bit, um, stimulated by the questions that people very kindly send in to us. And we've saved up two or three for you, Tom, that we thought were actually much too difficult for us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um,
2: can I start with a cluster of questions about the relationship between um, Israel and Christianity? Hmm. Um, it comes in several different forms, so I'll read you a couple of different ones and see what, how you'd like to approach it. Um, here's one. What is your opinion of the promises of land and blessing that the Lord gave the Israelites? Do you think the land mentioned in Joshua 1.4 has somehow been set aside for the Jewish people? Um, and a similar question. Has God finished with the Jews as a people? Are they of continuing significance in the kingdom of God, or are they now... No more special than, say, the Welsh people. (laughs) (laughs) I say that with a certain amount of betrayal in my But two related but slightly different questions.
1: Perhaps you could do so bearing in mind there's a Williams and a Lloyd. (laughs) (laughs) Quite, quite,
0: absolutely. I'm I'm well aware I'm outnumbered here. As a boring ordinary English person. Um, These are hugely important questions, and... I actually regard it as a sign of health in our generation that we're wrestling with these questions. When I was young, um, these were not really much on the table at all. And I think the fact that we're addressing them shows that we're more sensitive both to some of the key issues in how we read the Bible and to some of the big issues in the world today. At the same time, some of these questions have got slanted by both the politics and by some of the would-be theological interpretation of the last... 50 years or so and we need to do some unslanting if we're to get it right i think the first thing to say is that all of us as christians in the either late 20th or now in the 21st century have to be very very cautious how we speak about the jewish people because it is only two generations ago that uh, would be christians in europe slaughtered six million of them mm-hmm. and uh, we can only think about that with shame and horror. And even though I don't believe it was Christian ideology that drove the Holocaust, there's in, there was enough mixture of some bits of Christianity sloshing around within the Nazi neo-paganism to make it quite credible for people to say, actually, the church stood by and did nothing. Mm. And those questions are still rumbling on. <clears throat> so let's say that and put it on the table right from the beginning, that one can only think about this question with a deep sense of, of sorrow. At the same time, I am... Glad that some of the wisest Jewish scholars that I've met in recent years are saying it, it is actually time not to move on in the trivial sense, <clears throat> but to find ways of having a conversation which doesn't simply go straight down the tubes of oh you're wicked because of this oh we can't say anything because of that um, and I think we need to work towards a more mature conversation between Christian people and Jewish people and within, among Christian people, about the Jewish people and not to be scared from saying anything just because of the the, the awful, horrible things that happened 60 years or so ago uh, 60 70 years ago so with that on the table um, One of the difficulties is that for many generations, the Church has read the New Testament as though the Old Testament was simply um, an interesting, rather long um, bit of preamble, Mm -hmm. but which can be then for all effective purposes, set aside, except that there are one or two promises there about what God was going to do, and now that God's done it in Jesus, it's nice to know that there were some promises which were fulfilled, but really there's not a whole lot more to learn from there except some some, some wonderful bits of poetry in the Psalms and so on. And, and actually that just won't do, and the early Christians themselves would say, read what we wrote and you'll see we were soaked in the Old Testament and you should be too, because the Old Testament offers itself as a story in search of an ending, And an ending is both a climax, a culmination, a fulfillment, and at least a transition point. And the way the Old Testament tells its own story, it's straining forwards, it's saying... The big thing hasn't happened yet. We're not sure where we're going, but we're waiting for God to do something. And we're not even sure what it's going to look like when he does, but it's something like this, something like that. They've got a sort of follow the dots thing of the purposes of God, but the dots haven't got numbers on, so you can't join them up too easily. (laughs) And the the New Testament says, um, we'll tell you where the numbers are, and then you'll see this is what the picture actually was going to look like all along. And that's always contentious, because at the time there were plenty of Jews who said, we don't like the way you've joined up those dots, thank you very much. And they still are. Um, and they still are, um, absolutely. But we need to recognize that's a conversation that's been happening ever since the ministry of Jesus himself and that that was part of the point. Now, having said that, long preamble. Um, the Which, key... we disposal? Which we can now dispose Which we can well, no, quite, <laughs> absolutely, no, don't you dare. Um, the, 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 the key thing is that the way that the book of Genesis itself is written is to say that the promises that God made to Abraham – always were designed to deal with the problem that was the legacy of adam and that's actually deeply jewish perception itself genesis 12 answers genesis 1 2 and 3 um, the, the Genesis 3 runs right the way on to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 when the human race is scattered and divided and confused and rebellious. And then in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, now, in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he makes promises to Abraham which are like a going back to the beginning except it's not a going back to the beginning it's going on to where God wanted that beginning to be heading in the first place it's as though we're getting the Adam project back on track and instead of a garden to look after Abraham is promised a land and indeed as those stories get edited over the succeeding thousand years or how long it is um Increasingly, I think the Jewish people who are telling the stories will have shaped them in such a way to make it clear that, the, promise, that the, the, the Garden of Eden stuff in Genesis 1 and 2 is, in a sense, looking ahead to the land, but that the promises about the land are, in a sense, also looking back to Adam. So that when you then get the story of Israel going into exile, because of Israel's rebellion in the land, anyone reading that whole narrative would think, oh my goodness, Israel has just had happen to it, what Adam and Eve had happened to them, being booted out of the garden because of rebellion, and those stories have influenced one another. Now, when you start to read the Old Testament like that, there looms up a possibility which I haven't heard many people talking about, but which to me makes an enormous amount of sense of the New Testament, that the promise of the land to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, and then the succeeding warnings and commands about the land in the king's period And then in the post-exilic period, all these promises about the land are a way of saying, you, my people, Israel, you're my pilot project. You are the people who are to model what my eventual renewed world, renewed humanity will look like. In other words, it looks as though the promises about the land are a signpost towards God's eventual intention, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, to do this for the whole world of creation in other words the land is not a retreat from creation it's an advance into it's a bridgehead into creation then when we come into the new testament We find all sorts of interesting things about the land in the gospel. We find Jesus paying scant attention to it. He goes off to Tyre and Sidon. He does this. He does that. Samaria. He goes and talks to people in Samaria. There's a sense that he seems to be smudging the boundaries of the land. He's certainly not saying, here are the borders. This is what we've got to defend. Here we are. And then, of course, in Acts, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're expecting... A restoration of national sovereignty, of territoriality, etc. And Jesus says, well, it's an interesting question in Acts 1, is the answer yes or no? Mm. And I think the answer is yes, but not the way you think. Because he says, actually, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea, yes, 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 and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the story of Acts is the story precisely of the beginning of this movement, which transcends the land, even as it transcends the Jew-Gentile ethnic boundary. And one of the sharp places you see this, very interestingly, is in Romans. In Romans 4, Paul says, the promise to Abraham and his seed that they should inherit the earth, the world, the cosmos, was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. That's Romans 4.13. And so we think, wait a minute, surely God promised Abraham this land. And why is Paul saying that, that Abraham would be the inheritor of the cosmos, the world? And we hold that question in our heads if we know how to read Paul. And we work through chapter 5, Adam, chapter 6, coming through the waters, chapter 7, the law. This sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? And indeed, that's the point. And then in chapter 8, when he's talking about the inheritance, the Jewish people think this is the land. Land. The modern Christian thinks this is heaven. Mm. And they're both wrong. Mm. This is the world. And so it is for Paul. The whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay and share the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So in the light of that, we can understand what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 1 when he says all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And and it is their yes, not their no. In other words, yes, the land is holy, but now the whole world is God's holy land. And that's a promise and an image which I think Christians desperately need today to get their heads around. So that is where where I would start theologically. Mm. Is there a hint of that in in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit Mm. the earth. Yes, shades Uh, of life of brown. Oh, I'm glad the meek are going to get something, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But
2: but you used the phrase a pilot project about the Jewish, about the the, the people of Israel. Um, Is that pilot project over. How should Christians and Jews relate now?
0: There is something which is over and there is something which isn't over. And you can see Paul wrestling with that duality throughout his letters. In Galatians for instance, he's clearly talking about something which is over and the thing which is over is the time when the people of God are composed simply of one ethnic and geographical unit so that they and their boundaries are that's it forever and ever and if there are going to be any gentiles in god's family they're going to have to come in on a rather crawly method through the back door and always be second-class citizens and paul says no that was for a time and that is now finished he doesn't in galatians need to address the next question um paul what then are we saying
1: Mm.
0: about these jews but Boy, by the time you get to Romans, he has to address it and does big time. And he addresses it, as I've tried to indicate, with tears, that there is a tragedy. And it wouldn't be a tragedy if it didn't matter. If Paul could have said, it's all right because they have their path to salvation and we have ours, so we'll wave at them as we go by, but it's not a problem, then he would never, ever have written Romans 9 to 11 like he does. Mm. And the resolution which he comes to is always a mysterious one. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We don't know how God's going to do this stuff. but..." There is a strong sense that the minute That the church says to itself We are basically a non-Jewish organization And there are those funny Jews down the street And they're a bit of a nuisance And uh, never mind God's finished with them The moment that the church starts to speak like that About God's ancient people Watch out because that is hubris That is pride And um, there have been churches that have thought like that And that have come a cropper um, So that the relationship then Between the church and the Jewish people Seems to me can be conceived, as I and some others have tried to conceive it, rather like the relationship between the older and younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son, that Gentile Christians, such as myself, come in from the far country. The older brother, for the most part, Jews who do not accept Jesus as their Messiah, quite naturally looks at us scruffy erstwhile pagans, as it were, and says, it doesn't look much like our idea of the people of God and then the challenge to the church is how do we have the prodigal's party in such a way as to make the older brother say actually this is what it's all about the trouble is that the church has far too often celebrated the party with the fatted calf in such a way as to say and let's leave that snooty old brother outside because we don't want him anyway And, and if we read Luke 15 like that We'll find it leaves us exactly where Romans 9 to 11 leaves us, with this poignant thing of the father going out to have another word with the older brother. And the fact that the story stops there, Mm. you know, we want to know what happens. It's hugely poignant, and I think that's exactly where we are. So... And it is in itself an invitation. It is in it? itself. It is in itself an invitation. Um, but not
2: our invitation, Not the Christians' invitation. Isn't that God's interesting? Invitation. Isn't yeah.
0: that interesting? That in the parable of the prodigal son, it's God's invitation. In Romans, Paul does not say to the Gentile church in Rome. And, and, and let's be clear: we're probably talking about maybe fifty Christians in a city of several hundred thousand, mm. and we're talking about. Um, thousands and thousands of Jewish people yeah. who had come back to Rome after they'd been expelled in the late 40s. Um, they'd come back in the mid-50s when Nero ascended the throne. So there were, there were lots and lots of Jewish people, lots of synagogues, and a tiny little Christian church. So it's not as though we're talking about the Vatican with a few Jews. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> certainly not. But, but Paul does not say, therefore you Gentile Christians must get on with your Jewish evangelism. Paul is hinting that when he comes to Rome, he will be one Wanting to talk to the Jewish leaders as indeed in Acts he does but he's basically saying you must expect that God can always do new things with these people but he's not saying you must get on with the project of it and that, that's, that leaves us with a kind of humility at that point Can I ask a little bit about you were saying there was a kind
1: of for a timeness about the promises of the land and, and the kind of mm. Israel as a, a, mm. a, a mm. racial geographical unit one could say, mm, it doesn't read like that in the Old Testament. You know, this is a promise for you and your descendants forever. forever kind of yes,
0: yes. Uh, so what's happened yes, there? Yes, I think the promises um, increasingly in the Old Testament get funneled onto the Davidic monarchy. Some people get very worried about that. Walter Brueggemann gets worried about all this Davidic stuff. He says it's ideolo- it's an ideology. I don't think so. I think it's always got an ambiguity about it, and it's the ambiguity which is resolved on the cross. Where God does the unthinkable And this is both the most deeply royal thing God ever does And the deconstruction of all that was wrong with royal power Um, And that is the heart of all the promises in Jesus And with the crucifixion There goes also something about the land Which we in the contemporary western world Find it very difficult to relate to I think if you went to Africa and said What happens when somebody gets hanged on a tree The answer is that bit of the territory becomes unclean You've got to deal with the uncleanness somehow. And I think ancient people knew instinctively about this sort of thing. There is something about the king dying outside the walls of the capital city which says something about what the land, how the land and the city are now to be seen. I, and I find it difficult to unpack that very far, but... Is, is there I a start.
1: sense that instead of polluting the land, it actually <laughs> heals the land, rather
0: in the way that Jesus should well, be polluted by touching yes, lepers? Yes, and that, yes, maybe, but I think what it, what it does is, and it's hugely significant that the first person to make a comment about this king of the Jews dying on the cross is a Roman centurion. who yeah. says, oh, maybe he was the son of God. And already we start to see then, with the resurrection, the sense of of, of, of a new land, but now it 's the whole world it 's the new creation for the whole world, so that yes god 's promise means more than it says, not less uh-huh. as usual with God that um, uh, yes, it is a promise forever and ever, but it 's you know it 's as though the child was so excited because he 's glimpsed that present under the tree and it's got this shiny wrapping paper and it looks so pretty with the little threads on it and so on that the child then just wants to keep it like that and not unwrap it because it looks so beautiful and pretty. The answer is actually unwrap it and if you get rid of that wrapping paper there's something wonderful, more wonderful inside. And and inside the promise about this bit of turf is this wonderful truth that the whole world is God's holy land and that the Jewish people should be welcome in that whole extended promised land. The tragedy is that so often it's been the church, in whatever form, and the church has come and gone and sometimes got it right and sometimes horribly wrong, that has wanted to say to the Jews, you're not welcome here, in whether it's Holy Russia or Holy England or um, Germany or whatever. Um, and so the welcome to the Jewish people in every land ought to be a celebration that's why just one thing that I've been very involved with in the middle of the 18th century there was a Jew bill went through parliament to give Jews civic rights more civic rights in England and there were riots um, anti-Jewish feeling and the bishops were speaking up in the House of Lords I'm proud to say on behalf of the Jewish people saying they must be welcomed here we must celebrate the Jewish people in our midst and my own diocese has got some got some historic connections with that movement in that moment And uh, that, it seems to me, is much, much more important than simply saying they must have a home in the Middle East and they must restore their ancient boundaries and they must do this and they must do that. Now, let's be quite clear, following the Holocaust, there was a dire necessity for there to be safe space where Jewish people could know that they were safe. And if there's any threat to that, you'll find me among the first to put my hand up and say, no, this won't do. But equally, that doesn't mean that it's whatever the state of Israel wants to do, right or wrong. And when you get to that point, then we're back into an ideology which no Christian should be willing to sustain. And the best and wisest of contemporary Jewish voices, I think, would say to us, please, don't say Israel right or wrong. Say, yes, the Jewish people matter, they must be secure, but that doesn't mean that international justice and that local justice in the Middle East cease to matter because they do. So for you, <coughs> the state of
1: Israel, the establishment of the State of Israel, is a good
0: pragmatic move, rather than the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy? Uh, I'm not sure how much what happened in the late 1940s was a very good pragmatic move. It was a pragmatic move, and it was a bit of a dodgy decision by the UN, actually, and part of the oddity of that is that at the time, many, many Jews celebrated, ah, the UN has given us a land, and they've taken not much notice of subsequent UN resolutions, and, you know, um, we need globally... A better way of organizing ourselves I know the UN is uh, has some problems to say the least but it's what we've got and either it works or it doesn't work and if it doesn't work we need something else that will Mm -hmm. Um, so yes it was pragmatic but it created other problems in its wake obviously the Palestinian question and it wasn't an empty (coughs) land for a people without a land it was a comparatively full land Um, but the way it was done has been very very ambiguous
2: Clearly, we could go on talking about this for several centuries, as <laughs> <when> Christians <laughs> and Jews have. Um, but we need to move on to some other difficult questions we've been saving up for you, Tom. Um, and the next cluster of questions are all about the rapture, mm-hmm. partly because there have been um, a number of things on television and radio about the rapture, and partly because there's a whole tradition of reading the texts in the Bible that talk about the rapture that, that um, people take for granted is the only way to read them. So the, the question, let me read one of the questions that was sent to us. Please elaborate on the rapture and if it is a sound principle. If not, why not?
0: Of course, the phrase the rapture with a capital T-R um, calls up a modern tradition of reading First Thessalonians chapter 4 verses whatever it is, um, 17 following, um, which...
2: Listeners might like to know that Tom is flicking through his Greek New it's Testament actually, as we speak. Well,
0: it's verses 13 to 18, but it focuses particularly on verses um, 16 and then 17, which contains the word snatched up, caught up, or raptured. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the tradition which we have inherited called the rapture is largely an invention of the m- mid-19th century of the J.N. Derby Um, Plymouth Brethren movement which constructed a way of reading not only the Bible but the whole of Christian truth in a very dualistic fashion in which ultimately uh, the little church and it was assumed that the church would get smaller and smaller and more and more beleaguered would eventually consist of rather a few people who were the really righteous at the end time moment and that then Jesus would appear in the second coming but not to rule and reign on the earth as in the new testament and to transform this world with the power of his redeeming love but to snatch god's people away from this earth and to leave them sitting on a cloud somewhere, or in, a, in whatever form, but in a detached and an isolated heaven, while then uh, chaos happened on earth, and either an Armageddon or whatever. And out of that there have grown all kinds of different theories about, will the rapture happen before the tribulation, or will it happen after the tribulation, and, and what happens once the tribulation has happened, if you then, will there then be a further thousand year reign, and, and people have tried to put together Paul, Daniel, Revelation, all sorts of things, and um, you know, there are many different schemes out there which um, different preachers and teachers have taught, but at the center of it is this idea that when the Second Coming happens, it will be Jesus reappearing in midair somewhere and everyone flying up to meet him and in order to be taken off somewhere else. And uh, if I'm allowed to tell the story of um, uh, Professor Robin Scroggs, who used to teach New Testament at Union Seminary in New York, who was once asked Professor Scroggs, what is the rapture? And he said, well, one day you'll look out of the window and see all these people going up in the air. And you'll say to yourself, well, I'll be damned, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was, of course, um, well, kind of deconstructed a bit. But um, I think there are several things to be said, first about the worldview and then about Thessalonians in that worldview, you're halfway to Gnosticism, which we were talking about in the previous God pod. And in that Gnosticism, the world is basically a dark and evil place. And the church, if you want to call it a church, is a company of saved souls who are waiting to be taken off to heaven where they'll be safe forever away from the world. That is not the New Testament worldview. Let's just be quite clear about that. The final scene in the book of Revelation is the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth so that there is a joining of heaven and earth, and that means the utter redemption of earth and the personal presence of God and the Lamb with those who are indwelled by the Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian joining of heaven and earth. In one glorious picture And Ephesians 1 is so wonderful on this That God's plan in Christ is to sum up all things in him Things in heaven and things on earth As soon as you lose your grip on that You are heading off into the unknown waste of Gnosticism And sadly many Christians have gone that route So that the second coming isn't about You see we sing hymns which we don't realize Take us in the wrong direction um, he's coming back to take us home mm. no, he's not, uh, he- heaven is not home this earth is our home and God's going to renew it when heaven and earth are one um, Uh, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. When I see that on a hymn sheet in a service, I often say to the people, what I want you to sing is when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and heal this world, what joy shall fill my heart. Because that's the Mm. promise. Mm. Otherwise, it's quite a uh, change from the first couple of verses, which seem to be celebrating. Of course, of course. This is the bizarre thing with that lovely hymn. And it is a lovely hymn. It's the goodness of creation. And then we say at the end, God's going to throw it all away, and it's irrelevant. And that's a deep denial of something we know in our bones, and it leads to Christians being in denial about the goodness of creation, the goodness of their own bodies, the, the, the point of ecology, of politics, etc. Anyway, so to First Thessalonians, I mean, what we have to realize is that Paul is uh, a wonderful wordsmith with his metaphors, and the example I often give comes from the next chapter, First Thessalonians 5, where Paul says that fairly soon now um, the, uh, the, the, the woman is going to go into labor um, so that the thief is coming in the night, so that you mustn't get drunk, but you must put on your armor. And said, <laughs> Wait a minute, just, just what is happening here? But with all these, and he just throws all this stuff in, mm. and he's doing exactly the same kind of thing in First Thessalonians four, when the question is a pastoral one that these people haven't been Christians very long, and they've been told that there is a glorious future, that, that the world is going to be redeemed, and Jesus Christ is going to return, and He's going to be the world's Lord forever and ever and ever. And then some of their number have died, and there's horrible grief. And, oh, dear, does this mean the whole thing's gone horribly wrong, and is God not in control? So the main thing Paul wants to say to them is, listen, those who have died in Christ are not lost, and we will be reunited. Actually, people often say will we be reunited hereafter? And First Thessalonians 4 is one of the key passages which says, yes, you jolly well will. So comfort one another. And hereafter
1: with, rather than thereafter. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Thank you for that. A nice, nice little twist. Um, yes, a typical Lloyd moment there. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but, but what he then wants to say is that when this happens, it'll be a bit like Moses coming down the mountain with the law to greet the people With the good new word from God But it'll also be a bit like That wonderful moment in Daniel When the Ancient of Days takes his seat And the Son of Man is exalted And the monsters are are put to shame But it'll also be a bit like Mm -hmm. When an emperor or a ruler Returns to a city After a long journey Or a victorious battle far away And the citizens go out to meet him To welcome him home And Paul puts those three together in a way which, if you read it in a flat, wooden, literal way, is about as useful as saying, you know, the lion who is also a lamb who's got a sword in his mouth and seven eyes and so on. And, <laughs> and I know um, Hieronymus Bosch and people try to paint the revelation <laughs> scenes, but it comes out very bizarre. Yeah. And it, These images are not meant to be taken in that sense as the, the concrete description of what's going on. It, 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 is, it is a moment of reuniting, but the key thing about being caught up to heaven is a combination of this daniel vision of the vindication of god's people with the caesar vision of the emperor coming to the city and what happens is the the citizens go out to meet the the emperor because you know no good if they sit there with their arms folded in the city saying well he can come to us of course they they go out to meet him somewhere out in the countryside not then in order to have a picnic out in the countryside for him to go away again Mm. but to escort him royally into the city So the meeting with the Lord in the air, which is this glorious Pauline metaphor, a combination of, uh, say, Daniel and Moses and a few other things, is in order then that Jesus can be escorted, as it were, into the new heavens and new earth which are his by right. And as I've often said, if you want to understand the second coming, think first about new creation, what God is going to do to the whole cosmos, and then in that context... Of course it makes sense to say Jesus will be personally present in that. And the word parousia, which is often quoted, doesn't actually mean coming. It means presence. Now, of course, if he's thought of as absence, then, then if he he's now here, he, he has present. to come. <laughs> but actually sometimes, and this is hugely important, sometimes the New Testament says um, we know that when he appears, we should be like him, and we will see him as he is. And it is as though there is a great curtain hanging there in the cosmos, with heaven just the other side, within arm's reach, actually. Very, very close. And one day the curtain will be pulled back, heaven and earth will be one, and of course the Jesus who is present but invisible will be appearing,
2: will be seen. So why is it, do you think, that um, people get so wound up about the rapture? What are the religious... ...motives behind this desperate anxiety that people seem to feel about
0: it? I think there's been a huge amount of teaching, particularly in America... um, uh, which plays straight into this, that there is this end time coming and a lot of Christians are very focused on that end time as though that's really the thing which gives meaning to everything. Yeah. And it's bizarre because actually in the New Testament, the genuine end time does give meaning to everything, but it's an end time in which heaven and earth are one, not in which they're, not in which they're separated. And that has actually colored a lot of other elements in late Western public life, not least politically, because it has sustained many Christians in an otherworldly faith, Mm. which leads them to create a sort of safe space away from politics and society, which then has blown back through the religious right in America in quite odd ways and has generated um, actually quite a serious culture of um, uh, business-driven stuff. That I, the first time I met this was people saying we are being told by some of our friends that to be worried about acid rain and polluting the planet yes. is unchristian because um, we know that Jesus is coming soon and that when he does the whole world will be blown up and, and so, so what the heck? So we don't um, need it. We don't, so, don't need to look after. So we don't it. need to worry about yeah. looking after the planet. And there are serious, I'm afraid, business and political interests that are very happy for that. I, I was in a conference on ecology recently, uh, organised by Bishop James Jones. And some of the Americans who he had invited said, we have been told by the senior board members of our denomination that we are not allowed to talk about ecology because it's unchristian and we shouldn't be mentioning it. Mm. And uh, there are Uh, serious... Poor unchristian read, bad for our business. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) I mean, far be it from me to be quite so cynical as you, but but, but basically, yes. (laughs) Well, not so far from me.
2: (laughs) So, Tom, without completely changing the subject, Mm. um, if I could also throw in a, a related question that was sent in to us. In parts of the New Testament, Paul in many places, e.g. Romans sixteen mm-hmm. twenty, and James, James five eight, mm-hmm. seem to be under the impression that the end of the world will come in their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And even Jesus hints something similar in Mark thirteen. So but but the world didn't end then. What are we to make of these texts?
0: Mm-hmm. There's been a real difficulty for the last 120 years or so about how we read the so called apocalyptic expectation in the New Testament. Because um, this goes back to Albert Schweitzer, a particularly famous uh, man who, a great doctor, great musician, and also great New Testament theologian. And he read the New Testament. Putting back in all those Apocalyptic fantasies as he thought Them which many people in his generation Have missed out because they were embarrassing You know we had a gentle mm-hmm. Jesus meek and mild who would never have Talked about the world being in a cataclysm Or whatever and he tried to put them back in And the cat, have been, cat has been among the pigeons Ever since um, And uh, part of the difficulty is that Ancient Jews Who read their own scriptures With quite a degree of sophistication Knew how this language Worked and we don't I remember my friend and colleague, Professor John Barton in Oxford, once saying in a lecture um, that when we read a text in Isaiah which says the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon will be turned into blood and the stars will be falling from heaven, if we know anything about literary genre, we should know that the next line is not going to read, the rest of the country will have scattered showers and sunny intervals. (laughs) This is is, is not a primitive weather (laughs) forecast. So... um, uh, and it's quite clear, that, that's a quote from Isaiah 13, the sun and the moon and the stars bit. And it's very clear in Isaiah 13 what it's about. It is about what we would call a political earthquake. Mm-hmm. I remember I was lecturing about this in the States some years ago, and it was just at the time um, I am making this recording now today when uh, we're just waiting for the results to come from the midterm Senate elections. And about 12 years ago, um, Bill Clinton was in power, and they had the Senate elections, and suddenly the Republicans took control of the House and that's bad news for a democratic president it may be going the other way, we shall see but um, uh, the headline in Time magazine was small earthquake in Washington, one president hurt and it had a picture picture of of Clinton falling down uh, a fissure which had suddenly opened up in the ground now of course everybody in Washington knew perfectly well that there hadn't been an earthquake Clinton was not trapped in the middle of a street somewhere (laughs) trying to get out but everybody understood how that metaphor worked And in exactly the same way, there's a massive amount of language in the Old Testament and in the writings which Jews wrote between the Old Testament and the time of Jesus, which uses what we call apocalyptic language for what we would name earth-shattering events. Mm earth-shattering event, um, the death of Princess Diana was an earth-shattering event, uh, 9-11 was an earth-shattering event in an almost a literal fashion, so that we are frightened to use the metaphor because it really, the metaphor has come out of its cage suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so when we read similar language in the New Testament, we have to grow up in how we read it and realize how people used this sort of language. And that at the time of Jesus, there was this awful presence of the Roman Empire and the Roman army just around the place. And everybody knew that if the Jews went on rebelling the way they were, um, either God would have to do something pretty dramatic to rescue them from Rome, or Rome would eventually get fed up and say, that's it. And throughout the Gospels, and Luke, you can see this particularly clearly, Jesus is warning about the future of Jerusalem and the future of the temple. And he doesn't mean that there is going to be um, a a cosmic earthquake or we're going to collide with a meteor or that the world is going to blow up. He means that it's going to be an earth-shattering event and that uh, it's going to be extremely unpleasant and Jerusalem and the temple are going to be smashed to smithereens. Now, my teacher, George Caird, and I didn't by any means always agree with him, but I think he was right on this. He used to say that if you read Luke, you can see that that is certainly how Luke took it. But if you then study Luke in relation to Matthew and Mark, you can see that Luke wasn't making it up. This wasn't Luke's reinterpretation of something which, until the time of Luke, had meant a literal global, what we would call a cosmic catastrophe, or like an atom bomb or something. so when we read Mark 13, we have to say, actually, the questions at the start of this chapter are Jesus saying, you see this beautiful temple, it's all going to come crashing down. And they say when and how and what's going on. And then they talk about the end of the age. And successive generations of translators and commentators have thought that that must mean the end of the world because it's been assumed that that's what it was about, the end of the world. But actually that chapter, Luke 21, Mark 13, and I believe Matthew 24, though that is controversial and some people read it differently, um, are about the fall of Jerusalem. That's the question which is up front. Mm. And then what would be the sign of your royal presence and of the close of the age? It is as though Jesus is answering in a way which telescopes things together. Now, let's just put ourselves back for a moment into the time of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has been trying to tell his followers, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. And they don't get it. They really don't get it. If they had got it, they probably wouldn't have followed it. I think, and it's very heavily ironic, I think when Jesus says we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be handed over and his chief priests and uh, be killed and on the third day be raised, I think they think that is a very odd metaphor, meaning some of us may get hurt, some of us may get killed, but we're going to win. Mm. And that's why they follow him. So they're not expecting that he's going to die and be raised. Otherwise, when he was killed, they would have said, oh, well, that's that's very nasty, yeah. but um, we we'll wait three days and then he'll be back. Yeah. And, and <laughs> that is not the picture we get, to say the least. Um, you know, there's no sense of, oh, well, we've got to go through let's just hide, and then it'll be all right. Uh, no, they're not like that at all. Um, there's a sense of, oh, this is just the end. This should not have happened. Mm. So there is no way that Jesus is giving them a kind of chronologically phased account of, well, I'll die, then I'll be raised, got that, fine, good, and then there'll be this, and then there'll be that, and then finally there will be a second coming. They're just not up for that at all. When they hear that in Acts chapter 1, this is new um, uh, from the angel. He will come in like manner. You know, that, that, that's totally new to them. So when we project ourselves back to Jesus on the Mount of Olives saying, see this temple, they are wrestling with the questions God is going to bring history to its great climax and that must involve Jesus being Lord and and, and when will he appear in his royal power and when's that going to happen? And so all these questions are scrunched together in a kind of eschatological telescoping thing where things which we now see with great hindsight are in fact strung out over a much longer period are squashed together exactly as you find it in the old testament prophets where things are said some of which happened the next day some of which happened 400 years later from the perspective of the prophet that's not a problem Um, and so we have to learn to read um, mark 13 and its parallels in that way now With Paul, Romans 16, yes, and actually plenty of other passages, and perhaps the most famous is 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, uh, if you're thinking about getting married, probably not a good idea because the form of this world is passing away. Do if you want to, but whatever. And there's been a lot written about these, and I'm not suggesting that in two sentences I can solve all the exegetical problems. Oh, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) But... um, uh, it, it's, I mean, for instance, Bruce Winter in Cambridge has done a lot of stuff on what was going on in the uh, Aegean world, that's the Greek world, in the 50s. And there was a great famine just at the time Paul was writing 1 Corinthians. And it looks, what Bruce Winter has argued, it looks as though he's saying um, there is a time of great distress at the moment. Um, the present time is really very tough. And at the moment, it's time for battening down the hatches. Not, Don't,
2: not a good moment to be having children. N-
0: not, not, not a good moment. mouths to feed. Yeah. Well, right. n- n- not, not, not yeah. a good moment to be, to be starting new projects. Yeah. You know, just, just hang in there. Um, and it is as though at any given point in the sequence, you can say, well, with Paul, um, Jesus might come again. The new heavens and the new earth might happen at any time. But the things which say it must happen in your lifetime or within a generation are, I think, visibly connected to the prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem. And in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I think Paul knows those prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem. And I think it is one of the imperatives that drives Paul to do what he does, that he wants to establish Jew plus Gentile Christian communities on Gentile soil ahead of the fall of Jerusalem. Because he knows that if he doesn't do that... Then, when Jerusalem falls, the Jewish Christians will say, Pff, It's because we are fraternizing with those Gentiles, and the Gentile Christians will say, Pff, It's because God's finished with the Jews. Yeah. So, he is, the urgency of Paul's mission is not to convert some before the end of the world, but to establish these united churches before the balloon goes up and the whole world looks different. And, you know, we who live in the shadow of 9 11 know what it's like yeah. for a cataclysmic event as a result of which everybody in the world reads their politics and their theology differently. And Paul knew that the fall of Jerusalem would have that kind of effect on everything and is determined to get things done before then.
2: And so that, how really important, uh, after 9-11, it was that there were close relations between oh, Jews and Muslims in certain well, parts exactly, of the world to try to, exactly. to take us through.
1: Yeah. That, so yeah, that, that's been. a really intriguing... That's, yeah. Yeah. Parallel, yeah, That's exactly it. right. Yes, yes. Yes. Tell us about the letter and the letter purporting
0: to have come from him. Oh, in in 2 uh, in Thessalonians? Yes. Well, yes. Um, Would you have a
1: particular take on that? Do you? Don't you? Well, well let, me, let me do it for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you what you think.
1: <laughs> I spend a lot of my life telling Tom what you think. Um, <laughs> The, the Paul, Paul talks about uh, uh, you, the letter purporting to come from me, mm-hmm. saying that the day of the Lord mm-hmm. has already happened.
0: Oh, I see. And yes, the, the, yes, if that yes, were referring
1: yes, okay. to the end of the world, yes, yes, yes you wouldn't expect, okay. to, world, yes, yes, you wouldn't expect okay. to
0: hear about it by letter. By letter. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, of course, <laughs> of course. Um, do not be alarmed. Yet <laughs> that, 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 you're absolutely right. I'm sorry to be so slow. Um, sorry, <laughs> right, you have
2: the, Mike to remind you. I- even, yes,
0: absolutely. <laughs> even, even with all this coffee, <laughs> I have my yes Yes, that when Paul says, don't be alarmed if you get a letter saying that the day of the Lord has come, then it cannot possibly mean the end of the space-time universe, because you would have thought they would have noticed, yes. (laughs) And and, and this must mean, I mean, the, the really interesting point is Paul is using day of the Lord language just as you find it in Jeremiah. And Amos and Amos and so on that day of the lord can mean the ultimate day when god puts everything to rights and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the sea and that's you know the day that we all long for but you can also use day of the lord language for intermediate moments When God's surprising action within the world, and I use that rather than this wretched language of intervention, which I don't really believe in. I think God is always present and sometimes does things in his presence that we don't expect. Um, that, that, That God can do things in advance of that day. Which are signs of what God will eventually do And they may be judgments in the sense of negative judgments Or they may be judgments in the sense of putting things to rights Like the Psalms You know, the the earth, the trees in the field will rejoice Because God is coming to judge the world In the sense of sort it all out at last So that the day of the Lord can refer to something Which is in advance of the final day And I think that's precisely how Paul saw the fall of Jerusalem This would be a day of the Lord which would be an anticipation of the ultimate final day.
1: Which is probably a good point (laughs) to draw. Now
0: that we've got to the end. (laughs) Tom,
1: thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you, and uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. Great delight. May we
2: save up our difficult questions and and ask you back in a year. Yeah,
1: I might have um, some for you too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And thank you, Jane. It's lovely to be here. It is. Thank
0: you very much.
2: Beth. That was Godpod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.